I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. My guests this week are the writer and director of the fiction audio drama podcast, Feedback, a comedy of impeccable service. Writer Kevin Shea and director Jill Harper. In this conversation, we talk about how this production came about, how audio drama can be a very visual medium, how Jill and Kevin came to be involved in theater, and much more. Here's our conversation. Uh, before we jump into talking about feedback, um, I am curious about um, whether, like, why did you choose audio drama? I mean, I myself choose audio, chose audio, audio drama during the pandemic um, for a couple of projects. But um, was this project always conceived as as audio drama? Was it? Did you were you drawn to it because theaters were closed? Like, tell me that story. Yeah. So I I think I had the idea before. I had the idea initially as a potential play or something and then and then when the pandemic happened it was like the perfect idea for audio and it's something that i i feel like works best as audio so it 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 wasn't a thing that i was initially planning to do just because it was not a thing i had any experience with and uh you know i'm just i'm a theater animal but uh when things did close down and when there was money floating around for you know socially distanced digital projects um this was just like the perfect thing for it um so i hadn't really written anything of it written any of it before we decided to do it as an audio project but i had had the idea kicking around for maybe a year or so um on on your on the kevin um when you write about uh, uh feedback you you did talk about um how uh, you were not a fan of audio uh, uh, of radio drama. Um, so what is it that you? I, I we'll go back and forth in this because I can tell you what I didn't like about radio drama, which made me reluctant to to venture into audio. Um, but what is it that you yourself didn't didn't particularly like about about radio drama? I think I find them challenging sometimes because it feels like a thing that could also just be a, a TV show or a movie. And it's just a TV show or movie with the visuals taken away. And so for things that are written like that, I, when I listen to them, I just find myself wondering why, why not? Why aren't I just watching television? Um, I do actually like, I don't listen to them that often, but I do like like really old radio dramas, like pre-television mm. radio dramas. I find those interesting to listen to because they're very much written, written for people's ears. But um, yeah, the main reason is just, you know, if it if it can't be told visually and it's just being told as a audio project because there's no money to make it a TV show, you know, because it's like a cheaper form of of production, um, then that's the sort of thing that I'm not that interested in. Yeah, I hear you there. For me, it was always it was the 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 sound effects mm-hmm. always sounded like they were too much. Like, why do I need all of the sounds of the diner 
Why can't we just say we're in a diner? I don't need any of the other stuff because it's distracting. I remember Jill talking about how much she just hates the sound of people eating. And she was like, please, like whatever you do, no sounds of people eating. Um, mm. And I do kind of feel that way. But yeah, about lots of Foley stuff. It just it's like feels like a lot. And it feels like a kind of overwhelm sometimes the, yeah. the story you're telling. And for some reason, every audio drama just feels like it has to have a scene where they're like, oh, I'm eating a sandwich. And I'm like, I don't. I just, I didn't do that. For me, it was, you know, I don't, I cannot deal with those mouth sounds. So as soon as somebody does that, I'm like out. Just forget it. it you're yes, gone. It. But like, just like, I don't need the sound of the coffee brewing, the sizzle of the thing. I don't need all of those extra things. I can close, I could suspend my, 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 my disbelief. If you tell me that we are in a diner or in a library or in a car, that's all I need. I don't need all of the extras. And I think it's because they go overboard. It's too much. Don't, you don't need to set the scene so much so that I, it, it, it's overpowering what's actually happening. 100%. I think there's a lot of anxiety on people creating them of, of just, you know, oh, we've got to make it, we've got to do as much as we can. And I think, yeah, I think often the opposite is, is a better way to go about it. Yeah. Uh, well, it, in, in that vein, like what, as far as like creating this, and you mentioned that you were having conversations about what it might sound like and what not to do, that sort of thing. Um, what were you, what were, what were your initial thoughts about how it might sound? Was it just like two people on a phone? Like what, what kind of audio um, thoughts were you having as you entered into it for, for both of you? I mean, Kevin, you know, when he came to me with this piece, it was sort of conceived as primarily two people on the phone, but then he had also written this other really gorgeous element of these two narrators. And he was like, well, sort of switch back and forth. Each of our two main characters has their own narrator, which has its own vibe a bit. Um, but those also allow us to get so much more information and so many more details about each of these people. And it lets us do that in a way doesn't feel false and it doesn't feel overdone in that way that I think often with audio drama, part of the reason you hear way too much of the diner is because audio is their only way to tell you about that. And so now they feel like they have to go overboard with all of these audio elements. And because uh, Kevin had written this really lovely narration, it lets us get so much of that detail Instead of trying to show someone's facial expression by them grunting in a way no one ever would, he can tell us, you know, one of these narrators can can give us the little piece that's going through that person that person's mind, and then we can move on from it and sort of stay in this more realistic auditory world. And I think that was one of the things for me that convinced me that like this work in this way and that that it needed to exist in this in this format as well. Uh, Kevin, when you were when you were writing it, um, w what point did the narrators come in? What 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 part of the how did how did that part of the the story come in? That was there from the beginning, and it comes from loving uh, movies that have narration, particularly a sort of detached literary narration. So movies like uh, Barry Lyndon or uh, Listen Out Philip are, are just are movies that have this sort of detached literary narration to them that can sometimes create a bit of irony in the storytelling um, and just provide sort of interesting, interesting color um, to it. So even when I, when I had first thought of it, I was like, Oh, maybe I'll do like a stage play and there'll be like a narrator, like standing on stage. Um, so that was there like right from the inception. And then once I'd sort of decided on it as an audio project, I developed this idea of, of alternating perspectives. So, um, we go back and forth. Each episode is from what, you know, alternates be between one of the two main characters' perspectives. And I thought it would be really cool to have a totally different type of narration for each perspective. So for one of the characters who's sort of an older woman, more conservative woman, her narration sounds like an audiobook. It sounds like a, you know, beautifully written piece of literature. And then for the other main character who's a sort of you know, guy in his 30s who lives in downtown Toronto and is a drag queen. Uh, I wanted that style of narration to sound more like a podcast, more like 
something that you might be listening to on the streetcar on the way to your part-time gig. Nice, nice. So which of you would like to give us the, uh, the, the, the pitch, the elevator pitch for, uh, for uh, 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 feedback? Let's do it together. <laughs> like do it at the same time. Oh, okay. Do it at the same time. <laughs> oh, man. So feedback is a story about the surprisingly strange and intimate relationship that develops between a guy named Akbar, who is a drag queen who works part-time at a call center for a telecommunications company. And one of his customers, Val, who is a woman who lives in Etobicoke, whose family is experiencing a crisis related to her son, who she is estranged from. And as you get further in, you realize has been radicalized on the internet. So it's about these two people from extremely different worlds, different bubbles, who through this sort of customer service interaction over, you know, an $18 overcharge on a phone bill, um, end up really getting to know each other. And part of that is because Val is extremely nosy. And part of that is because Akbar wants to try and resolve the issue. And he can't resolve the issue according to the policies of his company. So he tries to get at the underlying emotional uh, turmoil that Val is experiencing and ends up uh, sort of trying to dig into her life to find out what it is that's made her so upset. Um, so that's the sort of, that's sort of like the main through line for the story. You also learn about Val's husband, who's, uh, and, and their sort of history of right from when they first met in high school, all the way through their marriage. You learn about Akbar's ex-boyfriend, who he's recently uh, slept with and, uh, you know, is wondering whether that was a huge mistake, whether that relationship could continue. Um, and then you learn about uh, Valerie's son and the sort of um, various elements that brought him to a place of, um, of, you know, being radicalized. And it's all told through a mix of narration and scenes featuring some truly phenomenal Canadian actors and a great score and wonderful sound design and great editing. Jill, is there anything you'd like to add to that? I mean, that was pretty thorough. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's about it. Really... Um, I've worked in customer service for twenty five years, and <laughs> in many in many call centers. Um, so a lot of it, a lot of that resonates with me. Uh, uh except for the part where I gave a shit after I got off the phone with somebody who may have been really problematic. Um. Not that I'm a terrible, heartless person, but when somebody yells at you, and I, I know, uh, uh, Kevin, you wrote about this on, on that very same blog about your time working in customer service, how people would go from zero to a hundred uh, in a second. Um, that's not somebody that you often want to continue talking to. So this is something that can only exist in theater and, and that sort of thing. Um, uh, uh, do you, I know that Kevin has that experience with customer service. Jill, what's your a uh, uh, customer service phone center experience, whether as a, an employee or a, or a caller. Oh, I I mean I have both. I have probably been both people. Uh, I did work at a call center for um, less than three months when I was probably nineteen, and it's the only job that I ever quit by just not going back there. Uh, <laughs> I just was like, nope, it's not happening. Um, at one point, someone just put the phone down next to a speaker and played really loud music in it. And of course, you can't hang up on people. So I just sat listening to heavy metal for until this person was done. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And then I've also, you know, had to call when I moved into my current place. Uh, they were supposed to show up on the day I moved in and install the internet and just no one ever came. And I called this internet company and ended up fully crying on the phone to this poor woman who answered because she, you know, it sort of turned out that they, they couldn't install the internet at all in my building and no one at any point had told me that in the month I, you know, called them to make this change and then until that day. Uh, 
And so, yeah, we got into our life stories on that call. So, yeah, I do actually think there's something very relatable, even if it's a little bit insane about about the direction that this thing takes. Just to sort of your earlier point, I mean, the character, one of the things I wanted to explore was this this imbalance between Akbar and Val, where Val wants to keep talking. Akbar does not, but but has to. He can't he can't end the call. And he also, you know, talks to his boss to see like if he can just give her what she wants. And his boss says no. So he's sort of like trapped in a situation. And I wanted to explore the way in which there are these really lopsided dynamics that even though you can develop intimacy by, you know, by talking to somebody who calls into your call center or shows up at your store or whatever the the relationship is, um, there is this sort of permanent power imbalance that can kind of be exploited at the same time. And so um, I was interested in in having also the impact of their experience by the end of it, not to spoil anything, but you see that the effect that it had on Valerie and it's much larger in a way than it than it is on Akbar, where Akbar doesn't actually think that much about the call um, in the <laughs> in the following weeks. What what if one of the interesting things about uh, the call center society that we've built, because um, every business has a call center and everybody ends up calling the call center at some point or another, is we've built into it the idea that if you are not irate, I can't help you. I can't give you anything unless you are irate. Um, my first call center was uh, at uh, a bookseller, online bookseller. Um, I will you know, chapters, um, and uh, they. Uh, 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 if if somebody was irate, we could escalate them to uh, an area where they would go move heaven and hell. They would order from Amazon if they had to to get the book for that person. But unless they were irate, I could not move them there. So it was like we we had a, a the whole culture is you call up. You can be the nicest person in the world, and I cannot help you until you are yelling, and then I can do something for you. Which is like one of the craziest things. Kevin, I know when you worked in a call center, you had uh, uh, some experiences like that. Um, what kind of what, are, what which of those experiences or what what types of experiences like that were you drawing on when you were writing feedback? Well, definitely that feeling of feeling trapped by someone and also recognizing that that fighting is in a way futile because if someone's not going to give up, they will win almost always. Now, there were instances where, like, we would draw the line or where, you know, my boss's 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 boss would be like, no, absolutely not. Um, and what I found interesting about those situations is when people were fully stymied and, you know, it, it was sort of clear that they were not going to get what they want, they would, they would kind of break down. Like, people just could not handle that experience. And I found the intensity of those reactions very interesting. And it made me think a lot about what else is going on in people's lives that would um, make them make them behave that way. Um, and that is very much sort of the germ of this whole thing is like, what are people going through that causes them to lash out at, you know, these poor people that work in, in customer service? Um, yeah. You know, what is that? What, what's going on? Why are, why are so people so upset? I mean, I think about this just generally in in our society at large, right? Like, why are people yeah. so angry? So many people are so angry, particularly regarding anything to do with politics. Um, and so trying to get to the root of that, the various causes, because I think it's there's always a mix of things that that lead to that. Some of it's ingrained personality. Some of it is your social context. Some of it is how your life has gone and your various disappointments around that. Um, and so really digging in and trying to give this sort of kaleidoscopic view of like, what is behind the rage? um was sort of a big part of yeah what led me to to write write the show mm, yeah i remember uh one of the call centers i worked at they basically had uh, and they forced a situation where people would wait on hold for two hours so they only had like a queue that had a certain number that would allow a certain number of calls through and they could see how many people were in the queue and how many people were being rejected and so you could say who be like yeah i've waited for 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 two hours and I found out that was entirely by design because they wanted people to get frustrated and hang up so they didn't have to, they didn't actually reach a person. Like mm -hmm. that kind of stuff is, of course, why people finally get through and they are 
already angry, right? But that's, again, the call center exists to keep the customer from achieving their goal, right? And so the first step is to not let them call in. So it's all like, it's all fraught and, and such a, a massive, like, how angry can we make these people? Uh, uh, it's just such a ridiculous thing that we've, we've, we've created uh, for our quote unquote customer service. Um, I mean, there's a back and forth in the show where literally she's on hold and she says to her husband, I think they do this on purpose. And he's like, no, no way. That's don't be paranoid. (laughs) No, no, they do. They do. They They absolutely do. Absolutely. It's all about because I remember um, the books The I mentioned it was chapters at the time. It was like no indigo involved at that time. But we had a system that they didn't introduce where like they introduced they were like hey new system it makes it easier it's better it's all this stuff and they'd introduce this thing where um uh somebody would order a book and they wanted to cancel so they would call us up to cancel but it wasn't actually physically possible for us to cancel it would tell us um this book is too far along in the delivery process to be able to cancel even though the book wasn't even in stock like so it was like yeah no it was like anything that they could do to not allow people to cancel that book that was actually our job not to serve the the customer, but to to get in their way of canceling their order. Such a that's insane. Oh, it is it, like everything about you know so much about customer service is insane. Um, about the creation of of this particular show, uh, uh, this this audio drama, you know, you were conceiving it and and sort of like coming at it during the height of of the pandemic, um, when it was being put together. Um, you know, you sort of went for audio drama and it makes sense. But was there ever an opportunity, a, a time when you were like, you know, maybe we'll do this over Zoom or anything like that? Or was it 100 percent you were you were like, this is audio drama is where this lives? Oh, I think it it had to definitely be a I mean, podcast. It, yeah. It was going to be a podcast. I do think we had what we did have were different iterations of what the sort of scope and scale of that was going to be for sure. Like there were times where. You know, when we first started, we were like, this is probably something we can all do in our basements and, you know, just send a microphone around and have everybody record themselves kind of thing. Uh, And then, you know, Canada Council gave us some money to do it, which we're super grateful to have got. But it is incredible how much just getting some money slows you down. So it went from something that was like, we're just going to throw it together and not throw it together. We would obviously have done our best with it, but like, you know, we're going to make it in our basements and see what we could do. And then it was like, okay, now, now that we have this, you know, going through all the proper channels, being able to, you know, go into a proper recording studio was fantastic. And being able to get music composed and those types of things that really elevate the beat, but they also just changed the process and end up taking two years to do it instead of, you know, our original plan. Let's make something right now. <laughs> the the downside to getting money is like, because I did, when I did my first, my first audio drama was completely just me. And it was just a solo thing. And I did, I did do it like just in my bedroom. Um, Cause I could, it was just me. Um, I and I think, you know, I, I started recording in, 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 in July and I had it out uh, ready to go in, in November. It was like a like Christmas thing. So it was like, hooray, this is easy. Um, but I could definitely see how as soon as you get the money, now you have to go through the, you know, certain channels to get certain actors and this sort of thing. And, and um, was there ever a time, and, you know, it's just, just us here, just us here. Was there ever a time when you thought, you know, maybe it would have been easier if we didn't get all that money? I mean, the this is so much worse as a thing to say. No, it was... The thought was actually, we needed twice as much money. It's it's one right. of those things where you get the money and you're like, it's actually easier in some ways to do something for free mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than it is to do something for just not quite enough. Right. Um, because the other thing that happens is like, you're like, okay, we can pay you, but we also can't pay you enough to take it to make this your first priority necessarily. Right. And you have to sort of spread it out with other stuff and, and all of this. And so it was kind of like, when people are doing you a favor for free, that's one thing. But when it's kind of like, we, yeah, it was just, it was crazy because on the one hand, it was like the most money we've ever gotten as a company to do anything. And then on the other hand, you're like, oh, it's immediately not enough. <laughs> um, 
how did this collaboration between uh, the two of you, Kevin and Jill, come about? Well, we had worked together. The last thing, the last play that either of us did before the pandemic, uh, uh, we did together. Uh, it was a next stage show called Consumption Patterns that was about the end. It was about the world collapsing. So we we worked on this play that was about the world collapsing. And then like a month later, the world kind of collapsed for a little while. Um, so we already had this working relationship from that. And, um, and I knew Jill, in addition to being a great theater director has uh, is also also knows how to edit video and uh you know she, she has all these other skills and so um that combined with her you know ability to work with actors and offer insights into writing um i felt like she'd be like a, the perfect collaborator for an audio project and i knew that you know because the world was shut down she was she was free <laughs> I, I, <laughs> jill what was your uh, how did you, how were you approached for this and how did you decide, like, what was your, what was your in? What, what made you want to work on this? Um, yeah, I mean, I have a very distinct memory of sitting in a tiny little park in the annex with Kevin at like, freezing cold and talking about this idea that he had. And at the time I was like, I have no idea what this is or if it will work, but send it to me, you know, like, uh, but I was also just really excited about you know, getting back to work on working on something that we could do. And then I read it and I was like, these are characters. I can absolutely see where, you know, where you're headed with this. And it was a pretty good draft at that point. Um, but yeah, there was so much there to mine. And I think Kevin did an incredible job of mining it ultimately. Just sounded something that was absolutely worth doing nice uh kevin you were you wrote um this this show the character of akbar for for somebody that you'd worked with in a call center previously who was also a performer um when you're writing for a particular actor um uh what does like what does that look like for you how are you how are you writing a role for that for that person well, yeah, so I've known Kasim, the actor who plays Akbar, for, I don't know, 15 years, some very long amount of time. We did work together. I did hear him answering the phones. Uh, so I knew that he had an understanding of the situation. But I wanted to also write about, you know, a type of person that is very different than me. So um, what I did is I asked Kasim if, you know, I told him about the show and then I asked him if. I could interview him about his life, uh, his experiences that we had answering phones and just all kinds of uh, things that I, I wanted to learn about. It was a great opportunity to be kind of nosy. So I interviewed him and took copious notes and used that along with just knowing him socially, knowing him as a friend to sort of help construct this character. And then, you know, I would sort of send him drafts uh, or he would, you know, we would do a reading of it and he would sort of give me feedback. And it was really wonderful working so closely uh, with someone. Um, and he ended up being a really great defender of the character. When we would do readings, I remember some people would be like, oh, I feel like this character is more likely to do this or that. And um, Kasim, because the character was based on him and, and he had helped in the creation of it could be like, no, I really don't think he would, he would do that. I think that what he does is right. Um, so yeah, it was really, really wonderful working with, uh, writing for an actor who I knew was a great actor and also who I knew would really understand the character. And then it was also really fun seeing him perform with, uh, you know, these, these other actors who I didn't know when I wrote the characters were going to be in it. Um, and who also were were wonderful. So it was really cool to sort of have both experiences happening at the same time. Jill, once you've you've got like the character uh, uh, of Akbar cast, you've got a cast that 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 actor is is locked in. Um, you have to cast the rest of the show. You have uh, uh, the you know you've got the woman and the people around her. You've got the narrators, that sort of thing. Um, how do you go about putting this team together? What how did you assemble this 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 cast of uh, of of voice actors? 
Yeah, I mean, Kevin and I had some chats about kind of who the dream team would be. Rosemary Dunmore is someone that I have worked with a ton throughout my career. I reached out to her for the first time when I was probably 24 years old. Like, hey, I'm directing a play by a playwright you've never heard of and you've never heard of me. And we're just starting a company and we're young kids and it's going to be cool. Do you want to be in an her answer should have been no. Uh, she said yes to us for some reason and has been sort of the biggest supporter of me and my career and Q6 since that time. Uh, and so when Kevin wrote this part, I was like, it's Rosemary. It should be wrote. Uh, and sure enough, she was absolutely on board and in. She was, you know, filming Chucky while we were doing this, but she was no, I'm I'm doing it. Let's do it. Um, and that was someone as well. Like once she was on board, she became, you know, a real defender of her character as well, and and helped to sort of shape the final the final phases of Ballard in a really interesting way. Uh, and then once we had the two of them, it's kind of building it out from a whole bunch of back. We know and like, and some that we don't. I mean, Tom Camus is someone that. I respect so much. And he was just sort of on our, our wish list. And Rosemary was like, I'll put you in touch with them. And, you know, he jumped on board. Yes. Uh, you know, John Tan is someone that we know and have worked with forever. Nadine Baba is also someone that we've worked with. Those are the two narrators, both incredible. Um, and then we went to, you know, uh, my co-producer, Christine, had been producing it city and so when we needed some of these like you know actors to play little bit parts on the tv and the boss and all these other things she really helped us to find some of those books as well which was great um but yeah a lot of casting for me casting for me is way more often about who i already know their work i i would just much rather make an offer to someone it's amazing than go through years of audition Luckily, for the most part on this show, when we made offers to people, they were like, yeah, all right, I'm in. Let's do it. Which was great. Now, how does casting an audio drama differ or does it differ from casting a, a, a play or a film? Great question. For me, it doesn't differ hugely. Um I'm so a good performance. Being able to connect to a character is the, is the thing that makes something worth watching or, uh, and a good performance is the reason I'm ultimately going to character. And so casting is, I think my number one job, cast a show really well. You're, um, and so in a lot of ways, I didn't have to, I didn't think of it too differently. I suppose the one thing that potentially is different is that you don't necessarily have to think about how someone looks in the same way. I mean, in my head, all these characters do essentially look the way that these actors look just because that's the visual I have have to. And we were able to reuse people in a way that I, with for a film, like, you know, my, yeah, Andrew Cole, who's an incredible voice actor, uh, plays so many little parts that you could almost miss. She is the voice of the wireless, you know, you've reached, and she's the voice on an advertisement that you hear in the background, and and the you know the voice of a another a whole other TV show that an ad plays for, and and so many things, but because. Because of the nature of this, I was able to be like, Caitlin, can you do these 10 different things? And she was like, I totally get it. Uh, and on TV, that's probably. One of the things that I think is magical about audio is the fact that you, to you, these characters look like the people who, who played them. But you have no control over what the person listening imagines. And that is a fascinating prospect for a project. Um, that the experience of the person listening can be different than, than, than what you actually intended. 
and then you have to kind of let go in oh. a way that you 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 don't or can't in film or theater. Totally. And my my partner uh, had listened to he listened to it before a lot of people for obvious reasons, uh, and so he had listened to the book. Then he's a photographer, and we asked him to take promotional photos for it. And he'd never met Cosm, and Cosm showed up, and he was like, "That was not what I would have guessed." Based on, you know, he had, and he sort of gave me a whole other name that I'm not going to say uh, for what he had pictured, just like a completely different person, actually, um, for what he had pictured for that character. And that really sort of showed me exactly what you're talking about. Like, people are going to picture, I think we have created a poster image that has those two, at least, uh, Cosm and Rosemary, on it. So that might shape that for people ultimately. But every single other person, yeah, there, there's no images of them anywhere. Yeah. Or anywhere associated. No, show. absolutely. Uh, Kevin, what is you, how, what's your feeling about, about that fact? The fact that, that the people listening, uh, uh, picture the, this, uh, this audio has been described to, I've heard people describe it as the most visual medium because it happens in the person's mind. Um, and you are not in control of what happens. How do you feel about, about that prospect? I think that's very interesting. I actually, honestly, have not thought that much about it, but it is so true. And I think that that's just a very cool thing. I mean, I do, one thing I love uh, about listening, about reading or listening to audiobooks is the fact that it all takes place in your imagination. And I think that was a thing that was very exciting in writing feedback, knowing that that was going to be a part of it. I mean, the first episode, there is narration that traces this couple that have been together since they met in high school traces their entire lives you get to hear basically their life story from when they were uh, 18 or 19 up until 65 um and knowing that that because it's audio that that story would just live in people's imaginations um was super exciting to get to do and then yeah having having people picture their own um their own version of Val, their own version of Akbar is, is also really cool. Um, I will say watch because, because I was actually watching the recording of it. So I was watching these people in a recording studio acting together. Um, my experience of it was, was visual and it was amazing. Like they were doing full visual performances in front of, uh, microphones. Um, and I think, you know, I think it translates incredibly well to audio, but the way that I think about it is, is, is cause my experience of it was visual is, is, as a visual performance that, um, because it was so fully inhabited is able to be, um, when you listen to it, it really, it feels so real. Like it's kind of uncanny how real the actors sound. Um, you really think you're eavesdropping on a phone call. That's, I mean, that, I think, I actually think that's one of the, the things that, that makes uh, a, a podcast, uh, uh, unique in terms of, uh, uh, storytelling. Because it is a very intimate thing. Most people are listening to it with things directly into their ears. And so when you are talking or telling a story to them, you are talking directly into their ears. It's not a speaker across the room. A lot of the times it is directly in the ears. And that is something that, that is, that is very intimate as far as a storytelling tool. Um, and something like a, like eavesdropping on a phone call is kind of perfect for that. Yeah, definitely. And it goes, you know, it goes back to when you're a little kid and, parent is telling you a story in bed or whatever like and it had that sort of immediacy and that intimacy that is just is so great and so um, such a pleasure to to experience absolutely um one of the things I, I often like to do on this on this podcast is i i love to talk to creators artists theater people about their origin story the thing that made them want to do this or their how they got from there to here so uh i'll start with jill Jill, what is your origin story? What made you first interested in theater, the performing arts, the whole thing? How did you get into this crazy business? I mean, yeah, probably a couple origin stories, if we're honest. Uh, you know, I would make plays, my poor parents. I, you know, anytime we had friends or cousins or anyone else over, we would be making plays in the basement. And then all of the adults who were having a lovely time drinking wine upstairs would be forced to come down and watch the plays, which were long. My mom bought me a book of plays for kids at one point. And she was like, these have 
beginnings and middles and ends, you'll notice, and you should try that with the plays you do. Um, so, you know, I've been doing forever, uh, but uh, I ended up going to film school because there is no undergrad for theater directing that you can take. I knew I didn't want to be an actor and I didn't want to be, you know, a stage manager or any of the things that you, you kind of could go get an undergrad in in Canada. So I went to film school and I, in my fourth year of film school, my friend, Sarah Ilyatomikoma, who's a playwright, I started QSIC. She had written a play. She was going to rise in theater school. She had written a play and she asked if I would direct it with her friends at her theater school. And I learned more in the sort of four weeks of directing this play with these actors about directing actors than I had learned four years of film school. I think in film school, someone said to me, use verbs and clarify. Uh, someone else told me that actors were just basically really expensive children. <laughs> Your whole job is to not let them wander into traffic. And I was like, great, that feels like a specific type of, of advice for a specific type of director, but it's not the director that I want to be. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I went out and started asking theater directors if I could assist them because I knew even in going back into film that I wanted to be a director, have, get the best of, of actors and, and knew how to create that relationship, uh, to strengthen the work that way. Uh, and I just kind of stayed. I just, I know essentially I've been making theater all this time. Um, and making this was great because it reminded me that I can I can direct in other mediums too, and and I would love to uh, to do more of that. Great. Uh, Kevin, what what is your theater origin story? I think it goes right back to just being a child and, and playing. And um, I think that like over the course of your life, you get other more sophisticated reasons for wanting to tell stories but the the root of it is just like i love playing i was an only child so i was often playing alone with my imaginary friends or i you know i had toys that i was using to make stories with and then ended up doing you know as a kid all types of performance dance and theater and and then you know at a certain point you're like ooh maybe i can become rich and famous through my writing or maybe uh, I will get a girlfriend through my writing or, you know, whatever, any other sort of reasons start to come in. And then it, it also can become a way of working through emotional issues or exploring ideas. Um, so all those other things sort of start to pile up. And then, you know, I think at the most sophisticated levels, you're thinking it's like, it's like a sort of quasi spiritual uh, activity. Uh, in which you're, you know, uh, uh, interacting with like the, the gods or whatever. Um, but yeah, ultimately I think it, it just goes back to like me loving play and loving imagination. Um, and that's just sort of been consistent since I was, since I can remember being alive. Now, a lot of us start, you know, for various reasons, whether it's, we, you know, we, we, we did plays with all the cousins downstairs and, or. We, we, our games were sort of theatrical, that sort of thing, all that sense of play. That happens to a lot of people, but not everybody decides to make that their career. For each of you, was there a moment that you can remember where you were like, this, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Or was it just a given? I, for me, the first time I really made an audience laugh was felt so wonderful. Um, and making an audience laugh, first, first figuring the, the jokes out with my friend, you know, like writing something and having my friend who was uh, acting in the show and, um, and working with uh, my friend and then other people that had gotten involved. And that whole process, that very social process was, was so thrilling and so fun. And then the end result of like getting a big laugh was just, uh, it felt so good. And having both, both ends of that from the, the creation of it, which was so fun to the final result, which was hearing people laugh. Um, that's just such an addictive, uh, feeling and I can't couldn't really think of anything else that I wanted to devote huge amounts of time and energy to uh, that I would like as much 
Jill, how about you? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I honestly can't think of a time when I didn't know that my life would be in the arts in some way. Um, I was lucky enough in a way to have my dad worked in film. My dad was a cameraman. Um, you know, he had a good friend who was an actor. So there were there were models in my life growing up to prove that it was a job. I think there's lots of people who grow up just not believing it can be a job. And these are, you know, and the, and the people that I saw and that I grew up with were not, they were just living lives on an income that they were cobbling together, making art. Uh, and so I'm grateful that I, that I was able to see that and see that that's possible. And so I always knew, I thought I wanted to be an actor. And at some point when I was probably like 11 or 12, my mom was like, don't think that would make you happy. You want more control over things than that. She's not wrong. Um, but, uh, and then I sort of started making films and making plays. I had always been directing the plays in the base or being on this, but I think I sort of realized that that's what I was doing at a certain point instead of just making a vehicle for me to act in. And then I shifted my focus and really just tried to figure out how to do it better and better. Now, when you were doing those shows, you know, those the, those shows in the basement, um, did anybody fight you on the directing thing or did everybody just like, because sometimes some people come in and they have that authority, but there's always some kid who's like, this is how we're going to do it. And everybody's like, this person knows what they're talking about. Was that was that you? Yeah, I. it depends on who we're talking about. There was, I, I certainly had a couple friends who would maybe try to fight me on some of it. Uh, and when it was family, if we're talking about cousins, it was more like, we want to go play hockey now. And I was like, no, you're doing a musical with me. Um, <laughs> so my cousin James, who I love to death, who was like five or six years younger than me. And I was just like, you're no, you're in a play. You're Tiny Tim or whatever <laughs> it was. Uh, and with this is what we're doing. Um, but they were good sports, you know. They would do it with me for whatever reason, at least some of the times. <laughs> All right. Now, as we draw to a close, um, uh, the question that I have about, uh, 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 you know, the, this, this whole experience, the, the show feedback and, and creating this, um, is there anything that, uh, surprised you about the process, uh, about creating an audio drama, about putting out a podcast, that sort of thing? What, what is something that surprised each of you? Um, uh, I'll start with, with Kevin on this one. I was surprised that it worked out. Honestly, I really, because it was a new form, I had no idea if it would hang together. I don't be, and because it's somewhat novel, like I, I can't think of many podcasts that blend sort of literary fiction and drama in the precise way that, that we are trying. Um, I was just. I thought, I thought it was good, but I didn't know if it would work. And I was very surprised and uh, pleased uh, that it, that it did, that when people have listened to it, they've, they've had no issues with the form. They've been able to get involved in the story. They've um, found it funny and uh, moving and interesting and thought provoking. Um, so um, that's just like a huge shelf compliment, but I am like, but yeah, just the fact that it worked for me is, you know, uh, the thing that I, I, I didn't know uh, was necessarily uh, going to happen and was, was such a lovely surprise. This sounds crazy, but I was surprised how much work it was. I had, I thought I had a sense of it. I thought I had a decent sense of how long it would take me. And everything took me, especially in post-production, especially editing, everything took me three times as long as I thought it was going to. Um you know, it seems pretty straightforward. You're not dealing with picture, you're just dealing with audio. But when you have a whole bunch of incredible takes from a whole bunch of actors, and then you're just trying to get pacing right and the pauses right, because now you have the opportunity, unlike in theater, you have the opportunity to have people cut each other off when they didn't and have and create gaps and create pace and space and all that, um, which is so much fun. But yeah, everything, everything just took forever and i'm really pleased with how it all turned out but i will know next time i will know uh, audio is deceptively you, again you think that it's that it's just yeah it's just it's just a voice recording how hard is it going to be 
and uh, then then you really find out, especially when it's like yeah. an interview is really easy because I don't have to do anything with that. But but uh, um, uh, fiction and putting together something like that, there's a lot more to do. There's a lot more to do. So yeah. Um, now, if people go looking for uh, uh, for feedback, um, they find it in all the all the places where you find podcasts. Uh, they can read about it on Q, on q6.ca. And uh, is there anything anywhere else that they should go? Anything else they should look for when they go looking for feedback? Uh, it helps to put the sort of surtitle in, just because uh, sometimes depending on what app you're using. Um, there's, you know, there's like 2 million podcasts out there. Um, so feedback, a comedy of impeccable customer service um, is the full title as it's listed in the directories. So you can uh, type in, usually feedback, a comedy will get you, will get you there. But um, there is that full title. Um, and if anyone wants to read uh, the uh, essay I wrote about the creation of it, um, that is also available on thekevin.substack.com. I will link to that in the show notes for you. Thank you. Well, Kevin, Jill, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you giving me the time this evening. And uh, I, I, I haven't listened to it yet, but now I, I can't wait to listen to the show. Oh, thanks so much, Phil. This was really fun. Great. Yeah, it was. Thank you. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.